Hey guys, Hackersploit here, back again with another video. Welcome back to CyberTalk, where I'm joined by Christy. Um, so we're really excited to get started. And yeah. All right. Uh, what's up, everyone? So it's been a while since we've done uh, this type of format, but uh, we are actually really excited to get back into it. We're going to answer your questions. Uh, you guys have left uh, us a lot of questions in the form that we've posted on social media. Uh, the form uh, is going to be there for future cyber talks. So we're really looking forward to, to seeing your questions. And one point that I want to convey here is that please ask very good specific questions uh, because this way you're going to save us time and you're going to save yourself some time. We don't want to be answering the same questions. We don't want to be answering questions like, hello, sir, how can I uh, use, uh, what, what are the pen test tools uh, that uh, are very good for bug bounty hunters? I mean, these sort of questions have been answered and you can find them not only on our channels, but uh, all the beginner stuff, you can find them on a Google search, the simplest Google search. So, uh, to save us some time and to save you some time and to save the internet from clutter, uh, please give us very good questions so that we can do our best to actually give you uh, the best answers to the best of our knowledge. Uh, with that said, um, we can just uh, jump right into it. Shall I do the first? Yep. Uh, yeah, you, you can get started boxes. with the first question. Okay, so the first question, uh, how can I master penetration testing using Python scripts? Not necessarily um, a question that hasn't been answered yet, but it's a great question. So you can start by simply buying my Python for penetration testing course. Okay, I'm joking, uh, but seriously, um, what would you actually, what do you actually do as a penetration tester? What are the types of tests that you run as a penetration tester? So for example, uh, let's say that you have a target X, a company X, and you're uh, asked to, to do a penetration test. Now let's say you follow the PTES standard. That's the penetration testing execution standard which comprises of multiple stages uh, or steps, such as pre-engagement, intelligence gathering, uh, recon, threat modeling, vulnerability analysis, uh, exploitation, post-exploitation uh, reporting, and so on. Now, in all of these uh, steps, you probably do um, a few manual tests. So from the very beginning to the very end of the engagement, and then, as you're doing uh, these tests manually, you will be able to see what kind of steps you can automate. Let's say, for example, that you're doing a pen test and you are um, in the recon phase of this pen test. Let's say this is a network pen test. So in this case, what you could do, um, and I'm getting back to the question, how can I, ma how can I master penetration testing using Python? you are doing a network pen test. In this case, what you can do, you are in the recon phase. You can write a Python script that will actually use Nmap to automate or chain together multiple types of scans 
to help you gather better inside of um, the target instead of you having to actually manually run each command yourself. So this is a very specific uh, thing that you can do. And this way, you'll be better able to understand uh, the penetration testing aspect of it and also the coding aspect of it better. You, you're going to be on a path to better understand how you can use Python in penetration testing. And for that matter, that there are a lot of free tutorials on YouTube, uh, if you just uh, search for Python for pen testing, and also on both of our channels. And of course, there are a lot of books written on the topic. We also have courses um, on um, on this topic. If you wanna, if you wanna invest into your education and pay actually pay for it. Do you have anything to add to this, Alexis? Um, yeah, I think it was a very, very, it's an interesting question, primarily because, um, you know, Python is quite a, um, an, in, uh, an important language when it comes down to cybersecurity and automation, which you rightfully pointed out, you know, things like automating uh, NMAP scans, uh, automating different types of uh, recon scans. Uh, and you, you can see this with, with the advent of all of these recon scripts that are currently out there. Most of them have been written in Python. So I think uh, in, in regards to mastering, um, you know, uh, Python uh, for penetration testing, if, if that was the exact question. Um, I think as you pointed out, automating what you do exactly, because uh, there, there's no point trying to automate something that you'll not use. Uh, it makes much more sense to automate something that you do, and, and therefore you're much more incentivized to learn Python and, and to learn, uh, you know, how, how to use various modules and stuff like that, yeah. All right, okay, thanks. Um... You want to take a question? Uh, yeah, so I, I think I, I got asked uh, quite a similar question, but this one was much, uh, much wider in terms of the scope. So the question is, I've been in IT for over 20 years. I've never done any programming or, sing or similar work, but I feel learning a language would be good. What's the best language to learn for hacking, right? So, of course, this is a loaded question in that it's, uh, it's too wide in, in, in regards to the scope. And when you talk about hacking, there's uh, various types of hackings. You can talk of networks, mobile applications, web apps, you know, uh, hacking software itself. Uh, but typically, if, in fact, if you perform your research online, you, you learn that uh, there are pretty much five languages that are used in hacking or cybersecurity and for various reasons. Number one, of course, is going to be Python because of the, mod, uh, the, the ability to actually build and, of course, share modules. Um, and then, of course, the various frameworks that exist. The second one would be C and C++. And this comes into play when you're talking about reverse engineering uh, and talking about um, debugging or disassembling software. So a good understanding of C and C++ is very important. And then, of course, you have a Ruby and Perl, which, uh, again, are used uh, to develop some tools and uh, can be uh, or are very, very good for, uh, for larger frameworks that utilize things like modules, as you can see with the Metasploit framework uh, or the Metasploit console. And then, of course, you have bash scripting. Now, bash scripting is not really a programming language. It's more of a scripting language, which means you can automate uh, tons of stuff that you normally do on your Linux terminal. So these were the languages that I would, um, I would actually point out or uh, I would actually recommend. Uh, with an additional one that's actually kind of growing in popularity and in use 
in cybersecurity, and that's the group, the Go programming language, which uh, you can actually see uh, there's an increase in the amount of tools being developed for it, primarily because uh, of the function of the functionality uh, or the thread, uh, the ability to to actually have your tool run uh, in multiple threads or ha have a multi-threaded application. So you can actually speed up uh, most of the things that would, you know, normally uh, be very uh, slow uh, with, with, you know, tools developed uh, in Python as an example. Of course, not every tool developed in Python is going to be slow. Uh, but if, if you're focusing um, on reverse engineering and exploit development, then definitely learn C. And when I talk about C and C++, it's also very important to learn secure C and C, uh, secure C++. Uh, learning how to write C is, is, is good, but also learning how to write secure code is very, very good. And that'll also give you a huge insight into uh, understanding how software is written by large companies, how you can test it, how you can fuzz it. Uh, yeah, so that's basically the question. Did you have anything to add on, on to that? No, I actually, so it's a really good answer. I want to highlight on uh, one of the last points you've said, and that's with regards to Go. So Go is really good, is increasing in popularity and mostly because of its uh, concurrency uh, feature, which actually makes it extremely fast and very good for parallel uh, processing. So in that, in, in that regard, it's better than Python. So yeah, uh, I would actually, I'm actually trying to learn Go myself. So it's like, a, it's, it's kind of a, a slow process uh, and I'm taking baby steps uh, because I do not devote as much time as I want, as I would like, but um, I myself, I'm trying to learn Go and maybe, maybe we can discuss it in more detail in future videos. But uh, I, what I wanted to, uh, say is to actually highlight the fact that Go is a really good uh, point, a uh, really good program that you want to uh, work, want to study right now and practice. And one of um, one of the most recent books, one of the, the most uh, uh, one of the very good books on Go for cybersecurity is I think it's called Black Hat Go. So uh, for those who are interested, you can just look it up. Uh, um, you can just look it up on Google and uh, see where you can buy it from. Yep, yeah, it's an excellent book. And if you really want to see the power of Go in regards to creating tools, I'll definitely recommend checking out Go Buster because it's one of these tools that's really leveraged uh, the advantages of Go and the concurrency, as, as Christy said. That's right. Okay, so let's move on. Um, I have a question here. How to choose your first program as a bug bounty hunter? Okay, so right now uh, there are literally thousands of um, vulnerability disclosure programs that you can find um, on, public, um, on public platforms such as Bakrar, HackerOne, Integrity, and so on and so forth. Uh, there are programs that you can find on private platforms such as Synac, Cobalt, and other platforms. And uh, there are also programs that you can find yourself using Google Dorks. So if I were at the point of choosing my first program as a bug bounty hunter, I would simply look for a program using Google Dorks. Now, why? Uh, I would do this because being able to find something yourself, 
therefore being self-sufficient, not relying on platforms, not relying on triagers, is a good place to start. Of course, there are um, advantages and disadvantages to this. Uh, one of the biggest disadvantage uh, is that it may actually take a good while until you find a good program where the security team is actually very responsive. Let me give you an example. So in one of the programs uh, that uh, I worked on that had a disclosure policy that I found on, uh, via Google Dorks, um, I would uh, be receiving responses from the security team at a frequency of two weeks. So that's a lot of time. And then pay, I was paid for the reports after more than two months. So obviously this is not very motivating. You might wanna, you wanna find, you wanna focus on programs that are responsive on security teams that are responsive, not necessarily maybe uh, you send them a um, submission today and you get a response in a couple of hours, but at least uh, in one or two days. So, um, like I said, a very good place to start is to actually try to find programs yourself using Google Dorks. Uh, and when you find a good program, you want to you wanna have a good direct channel of communication with the security team without having interference from the platforms and triagers. This is a good thing. And a Google dork that you can start with, so you can just go to Google and type in responsible disclosure reward and start from there. It's gonna be, you're gonna have dozens and maybe hundreds of pages to actually find uh, good programs to, to start with. So you can just uh, go from there. Yeah, that's, that's excellent advice. Um, I, I think that's a, that's, that's a very good question uh, because it, it's usually the, 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 the first roadblock, you know, as, as soon as, as someone is ready to begin is uh, what program do I start with? Is there a correct one? Is there a perfect one? And uh, I, I think, to add on to to what you said, I think also also having an understanding of of you know the types of vulnerabilities that you are going to try and find is really important. Or having a focus, uh, and of course, I say that uh, you know knowing that bug bounties can be a bit of a um, a, a bit of a random affair in regards to what you'll find. Uh, but I, I think learning a particular vulnerability first and how to exploit it, how it works. And then going out in the wild, reading reports, learning how the, the, this particular vulnerability can be exploited is really important. So I, I think factoring that also in, into your decision is very important. But as, as you rightfully pointed out, um, I think starting out with uh, with ones uh, in which you know the uh, the, the disclosure is, is with the developer team or the security team is much quicker in regards to the response, so that you you actually you, you make some progress instead of it being you know it it taking maybe one or two months. Um, the other piece of advice that I would like to add on to that that I've actually seen uh, uh, that I've actually seen uh, working or has started to work is that I've I, I've I've seen that whenever I've told uh, you know anyone who asks me this. I've usually told them to start off with sites that are are local to them. Now, let, let, let me explain this. So uh, 
the reason I say that is because they're already familiar with these platforms, right? And uh, when I say sites that are local to you, I mean sites that are probably within your geographic location or provide services to your geographic location, starting out with sites that you know. And of course, not all of them will have, uh, you know, uh, uh, responsible disclosure or a disclosure for that matter. So you need to, you know, pick and choose which one uh, actually has that. But uh, I've seen some great results with this because they actually know how to use the site. It's, it's important to them and they're, they're much more likely to be in incentivized uh, by more than just money. So yeah, I just wanted to add that on top. All right, good. Right, um, so I'll, I'll move on to the next question. So the next question is, it kind of ties into what you already said, but uh, the question is, hello, I've heard a lot, uh, a lot, a lot that you can work independently in cybersecurity without having a certification or degree but I'm not able to find a straightforward way. So please talk about working independently in cybersecurity. Thanks a lot. You guys are doing great work for the community. Right, so uh, when, when it comes down to, um, to cybersecurity and working independently, of course, the, the additional piece of information there is the ability to work without a certification or degree. I think that probably the best way to, to get some experience or to start working would be to actually get started with bug bounties and security research, primarily because uh, there is no barrier to entry in regards to getting started. Uh, you don't need a certification to, to actually enter a program. Uh, you can essentially just get started and work your way and build up your experience that way. And then of course you can start getting certifications. Now, the other thing that I want to point out, and rightfully so, is that you don't need a certificate to become a security researcher or to work independently in cybersecurity. And, and the reason I say this is because if, if, you're, if you're really not focused on getting employed or working for a particular company then, and you're focused on bug bounties, then you really don't need a cybersecurity certification in that Certifications are excellent when it comes down to learning because you can actually learn quite a lot in a very short time and you're incentivized to do so because at the end of that, you actually get the certification. And in regards to companies, certificates are, uh, are essentially set up to set up uh, or establish a, a baseline for employee performance to ensure that, the, uh, that you know, this particular individual is skilled enough to actually join us. And of course, it adds another layer of, uh, of um of accountability and uh, you know employers um, when, when they look out for you know cybersecurity certificates or pen testing certificates they typically uh, they're typically just looking for a guarantee or a way to ensure that you're skilled enough so i just wanted to clarify that so in regards to working independently i think bug bounty is a great way of getting started building up your experience and then once you have experience you can then start you know uh, getting these certificates and stuff like that and of course, you have the additional option of working as a freelancer and, you know, starting uh, to offer your services and therefore building your uh, experience and reputation. That's as far as I can, uh, I, I, I can say, you know, without any degree or certifications. Did you have anything to add on that? Yeah, so, so uh, you don't actually need anything to start as a security researcher or bug bounty hunter. You don't need any certificate. And I would actually go for that. The fact that you don't need a certificate doesn't actually mean that it's going to be easy because it's probably going to be very hard right now since a lot of people are doing bug bounties since there's very low barrier to entry uh, because you don't need a certification that 
actually means that you'll have to put in maybe 10 times as much work uh, than someone who's getting contracts on a daily basis via penetration tests. But if you put in the work and if you uh, do report uh, valid submissions and if you start getting paid, you do not necessarily have to get certifications afterwards, but you'll probably have to put, you will have something that you can put on your resume, such as uh, found bugs in this program. Uh, maybe you're gonna appear on their hall of fame and all that stuff. And then it's gonna be much easier for you to get the freelance contracts without even having to have uh, any certification. You might require a certification um, if the employer asks for that or if you're working in or if you're actually looking forward to work in a job that's a governmental job and it requires some sort of a precise certification. And there, there are jobs that actually require certification. But I think that in most cases, if you can show what if you can show your skills, uh, the skills were actually going to speak for you and not necessarily the certification. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to add. Absolutely. And uh, again, uh, certificates like the OSCP are, uh, you know, excellent in, in, of course, leveling up your skills. So I'm, uh, I, I just wanted to point that out that if you're looking at certifications as, as just, uh, you know, documents to get jobs, then you're looking at the glass half, half empty or half full, right? And you should be looking at certifications as a legitimate way of, uh, you know, leveling up your skills and focusing on, the, on improving your skill level. So, yeah, I think we can move on to the next question. Will AI overtake cybersecurity in the next five years? And what should I do instead? Thanks. Okay, so this is an awesome question because it's actually very near and dear to my heart. So first off, I think um, undoubtedly that AI is going to take over a lot of jobs, not only in the cybersecurity field, but in many other fields as well. So not, and this is not only going to happen in the future, but also as we speak. There are already algorithms uh, that actually run full-fledged uh, uh, pen tests and even algorithms that work in incidents response monitoring and uh, management. So you can, for example, look up uh, dark trace um, for those of you who don't know who's kind of a cybersecurity algorithm, but look up dark trace. Uh, and I actually did a lengthier video on the exact topic and you can find it on my channel. But yes, um, AI is going to get a bigger chunk of the cybersecurity pie, so to speak. So um, even so, not everything uh, is lost for pen testers, uh, bug hunters, uh, security researchers, and the rest of the people working in cybersecurity. Uh, there are many steps in the uh, research process, for example, in cybersecurity that require some sort of a human eye and it will take a lot of AI advancements for that to actually be completely replaced. So what I wanna say is that if you keep yourself in the learning process at all times, it shouldn't be an issue for the next couple of years. So if you're a lifelong learner, and this is actually kind of the definition of a hacker, of a cybersecurity person, these are curious people. They like to learn at all times. 
you should identify with this type of persona if you're in cybersecurity. And if you're someone who's curious and someone who's always uh, learning, this shouldn't be an issue for you. Now, moreover, uh, if you want to have an edge over other professionals in the field of cybersecurity and also actually protect yourself better, uh, protect yourself from being completely replaced by AI, what you should do is you should actually be learning machine learning, which is the very basic or the very algorithms that power AI. So in this case, what you'll do, um, you will learn how to build AI algorithms yourself, or you will be better. So by learning machine learning, you will be better at debugging or fixing AI algorithms when they malfunction. So think about that. Right, right. Um, that's a very good question. And I, I just want to add a little bit onto that um, and, and sort of um, and sort of counter that a little bit based on, on my own experience. Uh, well, firstly, I want to point out that, as you said, rightfully so, AI is already being used in cybersecurity to a large extent and primarily in these areas because I've, I've actually been getting into it quite a bit and, I've, and I've, I've actually seen the use cases and the potential use cases. Um, so firstly, we, we have seen the increased uh, use of, cyber, of uh, machine learning and AI in, 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 in the form of intrusion detection systems. Uh, it's also being used for malware analysis, classification, and detection. So again, it, it's helping companies and the antivirus solutions improve the ability to analyze, detect, and identify malware. You know, almost in real time, right? And and that's a huge thing if you come to think of it. When when you're talking about intrusion detection systems, not only are the intrusion detection systems right now quite advanced and quite cap capable at uh, at actually blocking attacks, and of course at the same time logging it. But now with uh, AI and having these huge amounts of data that they can gather or that companies can gather from, you know, multiple sources, multiple companies, uh, you know, you can build up a huge database of, you know, you know, attacks, uh, the, the types of attacks, uh, potential malicious URLs, so on and so forth. And you can increase, uh, you know, you can really, really increase the ability to detect and identify malware. Um, the second thing is that I wanted to point out, as Christy already said, is, I, and this is uh, again close to me because I, I work closely with, this, uh, with these systems on a day-to-day -day basis, is, uh, you know, the, the usage or the increased usage of artificial intelligence uh, with, the, uh, with security information and event management systems, or SIEMs, as they're called. Um, and of course, the integration of these helps, uh, helps these systems, uh, you know, adequately respond to the attacks in an increasingly intelligent way. And of course, the most important thing is the ability to classify these attacks and artificial intelligence is really, really helping with this. And then just to, to close off another interesting area that I've, I've said, uh, there's actually a few projects, I, I can't actually remember the names of, uh, of these particular projects, but AI is also being used to detect uh, malicious URLs. And uh, this, uh, th this system and service is being integrated into companies to prevent phishing attacks. So for example, if an employee clicks on a link and uh, the intrusion detection system or the firewall is able to pick up on uh, this particular traffic as irregular because uh, the, a huge part of artificial intelligence in, in a 
company or enterprise network is building a model of what the daily routine is in regards to the activities that are being performed by employees. So over the course of a month or a year, and then of course, when these phishing attempts or attacks are, 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 are targeted on, you know, towards a company or an employee, it's very easy for you know, artificial intelligence uh, to actually detect and say, you know what, there, there's something wrong with this. This is highly irregular. It's connecting through, uh, you know, on unspecified ports, so on and so forth. So uh, I'll just end it by saying that um, AI is, 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 going to be, is going to have a huge part to play in cybersecurity moving forward. And as Christy said, uh, your ability to learn and adapt, uh, you know, with the inclusion of cybersecurity in, in cyber, uh, of artificial and cybersecurity will be really, really important moving forward. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. So uh, I'll move on to the next question. So the next question is kind of a, a long question, but I'll try and I'll try and shorten it down and explain it. Um, so the question is, hi guys, uh, really love your channels and everything you've been putting out. I would really love a discussion between the different environments for pen testing, i.e. virtualized uh, guests versus uh, Docker containers for each tool versus Linux hosts, uh, versus remote uh, remote machines or virtual private servers. I think that's what he's trying to say. Uh, discuss the technical boundaries and limitations of each. Obviously, in the end, uh, each is a matter of preference, but given the new Docker videos and uh, the Linux guides uh, uploaded, uh, we might as well compare them. So he's essentially asking, uh, you know, the differences between these virtualized environments for pen testing and cybersecurity how they differ. And uh, of course, he's also mentioned the, uh, the obvious element, which is preference. So again, th th this, this question is quite simple to answer. And of course, the quick answer to this is, it all depends on your requirements, right? As a penetration tester and how you're going to be doing your security research. The, these two elements will really, really, uh, will really factor in your, in your decision in regards to what virtual environment you set up. So it's obvious here that they're, they're making reference to uh, Docker, which is a containerization technology. We then have a virtualized Linux guest, and of course you, the use of virtual private servers. So if you're running a workstation at home or in your home office and you're building a virtual hacking lab, then I'll definitely recommend you know, using a virtualized Linux guest and building your network around that. So having multiple VMs either running in VirtualBox or on VMware workstation, if you actually can get that license because it just works a whole lot better. Now, when we talk about Docker containers and containerization in general, uh, containers were essentially set up to provide or to deploy pre-built environments and essentially get rid of the, uh, of the hassle of in, uh, installing prerequisites and all of that. So when you talk about Docker images, uh, for example, the bug bounty toolkit that, uh, that I've set up quite a while ago now, uh, the reason I set that up is Again, I set it up for myself because uh, I would typically use virtual private servers, uh, either on Linode or DigitalOcean, maybe sometimes on AWS. And I would want a pre-built environment that was up to my standards, that had the tools that I wanted uh, to be deployed really quickly. So I could, you know, re uh, set up Docker and uh, pull the image down quickly. And, you know, I would have my environment set up really, really quickly without any hassle. And I'll be able to get to work. And of course, that also... Um, that uh, that covers the, the the preference bit of the question because 
you can see that it'll really, really differ based on your approach or the types of assessments that you do. Now, I'll just end, um, I'll just end off the question uh, by also pointing out that it, you can't really compare the, these technologies using a hypervisor and then, of course, talking about containerization technology, primarily because Docker isn't suited to, to provide an entire operating system experience. It's there to provide a, uh, you know, a packaged pre-built environment. And uh, I, I personally uh, would recommend Docker if you're building really, really specialized toolkits or environments uh, that are set up uh, that are set up that are set up that way for a reason, right? If you're going to be doing uh, you know tons of hacking and working with VMs and all of that, then I'd recommend just using a virtualized Linux guest, regardless of what your host operating system is. So that's basically uh, the question. If you want to use a virtual private server, then you know you can definitely use Kali Linux with Docker, and they already have the repository set up, so you can install the tools you need. So yeah. That's basically what I would say. Did you have anything to add on to that? Not really. I mean, uh, as you've said, it's context dependent. So depending on what you want, you'll be uh, you'll be faced with a different with different options. For example, if you, I mean, if you have a laptop that doesn't have a lot of resources, you can simply hop into, if you, you can get a cheap VPS with very powerful resources. For example, uh, I've talked about this in multiple videos of mine. Um, I've used paper space and also digital ocean. I think on a paper space, I was uh, able to configure a server with 16 gigs of RAM, uh, very good SSD. It was, I think, 15 or 100 uh, gigabytes, uh, eight core CPU for 20, no, 16 cents, 16 or 25 cents an hour, which is very cheap. Yeah. So you don't need, uh, you don't actually need to buy a very, uh, expensive laptop or use your own resources, you can just pay for a VPS and actually have uh, all your tools in there and uh, just uh, do your thing. It's, it's context dependent. So whatever, whatever your context is, you're going to make uh, the best decision in, in your specific scenario. All right, let's move on. Another bug bounty question. So um, how to check if the assets of a bug bounty program are changing, new subdomains, new endpoints, et cetera, with, uh, with automation. So yeah, I love these types of very specific questions. Um, of course, uh, you can actually build yourself some bots to do all the work for you which is why I highly encourage everyone to learn some sort of a coding language, be it Bash, Python, we already talked about this, Golang or JavaScript. Uh, these are my favorite picks. Uh, but to give you a very specific answer, uh, for example, if you wanna monitor uh, if JS files of a certain bug bounty program um, are changing, which is very often the case because developers make changes, make code changes, even on a daily basis, uh, you can combine a tool which is called Script Hunter, which is written in Bash, with another tool called Get uh, JS Words, which is written in Python. And 
I'm going to actually link a blog post on um, to the secure uh, securecoding.com website that shows you exactly what and how to do that. So you combine these two tools to actually be able to monitor changes in JS files. There's, a, there's also um, another tool which is called JSMON uh, that will actively monitor uh, changes in the JS files you set it up to monitor. And this tool can uh, actually send you notifications or results via Telegram, which is really cool. So it's called, uh, it's called JSMON. And we'll also link it up in the description of this video. Yeah, that's it. All right, that's uh, that's interesting. That's also a question that I was I was looking into myself. Given that that's something that uh, is very very important in the context of bug bounties, especially when you have you know programs where they're constantly making changes, as you said, to the code. Um, right. Okay. So uh, I'm just going to move on to my final question, which um, is a very simple question, but a, a good question nonetheless. One that I think um, is not really asked that much, but um, the question is, how should I start Windows reversing and Windows malware analysis? So they're very specific this time. Uh, and uh, please, uh, would you suggest a path to start with or, or courses to start with? Right. So uh, again, I, I have, you know, firsthand experience with this and I've pretty, I'm pretty much going to give you the same advice that I would give anyone. And um it's very important that, uh, that these steps are taken seriously because in my experience, the, these are the key elements. So firstly, you know, you should be able to uh, to write some basic C and C++ code. And when I say that, what, what I mean is you should be able to write it and read it. So if, if you actually look at a C program, you should be able to tell the difference between a function, a class. Uh, you should be able to, uh, you know, to, to actually, uh, you should be able to actually tell the difference between um, between uh, whether or not a string or an integer is being returned uh, in, into a particular into a particular function or is being used outside of the function, and understanding buffers within C. So again, a good understanding of how to read and write C And then, of course, the second aspect, which again is has helped me tremendously, especially when we talk about malware analysis and being able to uh, reverse engineer it is understanding secure coding, right? Now, when I, when I talk about secure coding with C and C++, it's, it's really important that you know this because uh, with most of the new products or programs being written for Windows, most of these principles are actually in place and you'll not find, you know, uh, buffers, uh, you know, uh, buffers that can be overwritten anywhere or within any program nowadays. So you need to understand uh, what code is secure uh, how secure code looks or what it looks like. As, and of course, you, you should be able to tell the difference between a function that has been written with secure coding principles in place and one that hasn't, and how they can be exploited, right? So that's a very important step. Um, the, other, the other important thing is having an understanding, a fundamental or rudimentary understanding of assembly and uh, CPU registers, what they are, what they store, what values they hold. Because when you talk about disassembling software or malware for that matter, you'll be dealing with reg registers quite a bit and understanding assembly at, at a low level, um, which it is actually a low level language is very, very important. And then of course, 
you you can talk about things like uh, static analysis, which is 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 quite simple. It's it's primarily just getting a fingerprint or understanding what this particular malware has in regards to uh, the static uh, assets and resources. Um, uh, you know, also generating a uh, hash or a signature of that particular malware. Um, I would then recommend learning about debugging and deb uh, and debuggers. Uh, yeah, of course, I would recommend uh, the GNU debugger or GDB on Linux. It's a great way of getting started. You, it's really, really clear and a very, very simple tool to use. The documentation is excellent. And uh, what I would recommend doing is writing C programs, uh, insecure C programs, learning about buffer overflows, and then taking them through uh, GDB or the GNU debugger and actually seeing what, what happens stage by stage. Once you, you're, you're familiar with debugging software and understanding exactly what, what's happening, uh, you can then move on to, uh, to learning disassemblers. So IDA Pro and uh, Jidra or Gidra, however you pronounce it, understanding how to use these tools, um, how, how to use them to, uh, to, to perform uh, reverse engineering or disassembly. And the way you can actually practice this once you get started with these tools is by, uh, by taking a look at various reverse engineering uh, CTFs, uh, reverse engineering binaries that uh, I think one example of this is on a site called CrackMe's. You can actually take a look at this site. CrackMe's is a great way of, you know, actually seeing whether you understand what you're doing, how to use the tools uh, that are currently out there. And uh, your job is to actually find a particular string or a flag within these binaries. And you do that by disassembling the software. So it's a great way of learning uh, about how to use the tools. And then, of course, to end off this question, when you talk about malware analysis, the best way to learn about malware analysis is firstly to read other researchers' analysis of a particular piece of malware. And you, you, you really need to do this because, number one, you, you'll develop a methodology for performing malware analysis on a, uh, on a piece of malware. You learn about you know, the different stages, static analysis, dynamic analysis, and then, of course, a behavioral analysis, and then, of course, the classification process. So then you can get started with very simple and old uh, malware samples that you know have been discovered in the past, and you can see what what you can find essentially. So yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say regarding that question. All right. Okay. Another one. Do either of you have your OSCP? If so. What were some of your favorite resources uh, when learning the concepts in the OSCP? Also, did you prepare for the exam before starting PWK, which is penetration testing with Kali Linux, uh, or did you jump right in? So in my case, in my example, um, I got my OSCP back in, the, in August of 2019. So Right now, as much as I stay away from CTFs, Hack the Box, Try Hack Me, all, all those uh, similar platforms, I, I don't do that. I used to do a lot of HTB before uh, doing the OSCP training officially. But after I got the OSCP uh, and started doing bug bounty and security research, I had become, uh, or I had literally zero interest in going to these platforms because with bug bounties, uh, I'm able to actually have a direct real world positive impact uh, on the security of companies with disclosure policies. So uh, HTB and CDFs um, are actually non-appealing to me right now. But to better answer your question, I would say uh, that before getting into um, 
the training, you do have to have some good foundations in cybersecurity and penetration testing. So when that's when you start the training. Um, and other than that, offensive security, the, uh, after you buy the course, offensive security gives you all the materials you need to succeed in passing the exam. So you don't actually need anything else. All the learning materials they provide uh, when you actually buy the course are more than sufficient for you to have a successful outcome on the exam. The only requirement on your behalf is to actually put in the work, do the work. They give you all the materials. You don't need anything else. Um, and yes, this is, this is what I think. A lot of people might disagree. Uh, and actually bombard you with labs on this platform or on that platform. But in my case, uh, I would say that study the materials, do the labs they give you, um, and it's more than enough. Just put in the work. Absolutely. That's fantastic advice. In my opinion, or in my case, I got the OSCP in 2017, I think in um, September, if I'm not wrong. Uh, and I, I think the, the latest update of OSCP has changed quite a few things and they now have Active Directory and stuff like that. Uh, but in, in my case, in my experience and in the experience of, of my peers, I think one of the key areas that you should, you should brush up on if you, this is your first time uh, you know, doing your OSCP, which of course I'm guessing it is, is to have an understanding, just a, a basic rudimentary understanding of buffer overflows because uh, of course they, they, they may not, you know, play a huge part in OSCP, uh, but having a good understanding of buffer overflows before you get into that is, in my opinion, very important because there's nothing worse than getting started with the OSCP and learning about uh, buffer overflows, learning exactly what it is for the very first time and then analyzing code and exploits and stuff like that. Um, the other thing, and of course, this will depend on a case-by-case -case basis, is if, if you don't have experience with Linux, like absolutely zero experience, definitely learn, learn, learn the fundamentals of, you know, using the utilities, using the man pages, um, and, and, and just get started with Linux, I think, before you actually get into it. Uh, but yeah, as, as Christy said, the OSCP or the PWK, I think that's what the trading material is called, is absolutely excellent. It's really, really comprehensive. And uh, the thing I like about it is it actually doesn't hold your hand, but it gives you exactly what you need or sets you on, on, on your way. And you can then move on from there, whether it's performing your own research or anything like that. So, yeah. A lot of people would say it's a beginner course, but given all these prerequisites, I wouldn't say it's a beginner course. And if you go, uh, they are very transparent with this. If you go on to, onto the website, onto the onto their official website, and look into the frequently asked questions, or the OSCP, they have uh, a guiding material or something that's public. You can see that there are some prerequisites there, which. In my case, in 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 my view, uh, I would say it's not actually a beginner course, and you should be able to fly through those prerequisites before getting into the before buying the course uh, if you want to have a successful outcome from the first attempt. Yeah, 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 definitely. All right. 
Okay, so I think I've gone through all the questions that I had. Uh, did you have any other questions that you wanted to get to? I think we're actually good to go for this session. Quite a few in, the, in, in this session. We will actually be looking forward to more questions, more very specific questions. Like I said in the very beginning of this, we're really looking forward uh, to your questions. We're looking forward to... Uh, feedback tell tell us uh, interact with us in in the comments tell us um, what you like what you don't like uh, and also make sure to look um, you can look to either of our uh, individual channels uh, and also um, we'll be linking the form the google form where you can post your questions uh, for future future sessions and with that said uh, thanks uh, thanks everyone for actually sticking to the end of this video thanks Alexis for uh, being my co-host likewise thanks for joining us uh, yeah so as Christy said you can find the Google form in the description sections and uh, uh, again as I have to point out please be succinct and clear and specific with your questions. It, it helps us answer them much better as opposed to vague and generic uh, questions. So uh, you can find that in the description section. Uh, if you want to engage with us, you can engage with us on our channels or on our social networks. They'll also be linked in the description section. You can also check out uh, our courses. Uh, they'll, be, uh, they'll also be linked out in the description section if you're interested in learning specific skills. And yeah, thank you very much for watching and we'll be seeing you in the next episode.